Well, it's so good to be in God's place of worship. I want to invite you again to turn to the book of Hebrews. We've been studying this book for, well, I don't know how long now. Not too long. We're in chapter 7. Uh, our passage this morning is verses 11 to 19. We'll read those together in just a moment, but our theme for today is our indestructible high priest. How about that for good news? Our indestructible high priest. We are beginning to ascend the apex of the book of Hebrews. We have covered some significant ground already. In fact, if you just want to Go back to chapter 1. I'll do a flyby just for a moment. Chapter 1 set Christ on high as the Son, as He is co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial with God the Father and God the Spirit. That's who Jesus is today. Chapter 2, the author of Hebrews highlighted the humanity of Jesus. So if author of chapter 1 highlighted the full divinity of Christ. Chapter 2 highlighted His full humanity to be our uh, captain of our salvation and our substitute. In chapter 3 of this wonderful book, uh, Jesus is presented to us as better than the law. Hallelujah. He is greater than Moses. He is the final prophet who has come. Deuteronomy 18 to proclaim the gospel to us, not only to proclaim it, but to also be the gospel embodied. He also talks about there in chapter 3 and chapter 4 how uh, Christ is better than Joshua. He is our final rest. He he will enter us into our heavenly rest, our heavenly Canaan, as it were, where we will see Him face to face and enjoy Him and savor Him for all eternity. And I pray that you will enter that rest with the rest of us uh, today by faith. Chapter 5, he begins to uh, declare Christ's priesthood for us. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 were used to declare his priesthood. And then we had an interlude of chapter 6, the warning of immaturity and the warning of apostasy that Uh, You can drift away and um, uh, perhaps at some point show that you were never in Christ at all as you would commit the sin of apostasy. But chapter 7 begins and we begin the apex or the pinnacle of the book of Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 is the peak of this wonderful book. And the theme for today is Christ's indestructible priesthood. He is, beloved, the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. That's our good news for today. Would you stand with me as we read chapter 7, verses 11 to 19? If you're new here, I'll read this text, and then afterwards I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you can respond, thanks be to God. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, 
for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at that altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope was introduced through which we draw near to God. This is God's inspired word. Thanks be to God indeed. Have a seat. We are going to walk through this text uh, verse by verse and phrase by phrase. I'm sure if that uh, after that reading you thought, what is this text about? Uh, Hopefully at the end, we'll get some sort of clarity about uh, really the glory and majesty of our indestructible high priest. So, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So, in other words, there's two priesthoods. In the old covenant. You see that? There is the order of Aaron. Or what he calls up above in in verse 11. uh, The Levitical priesthood. Aaron comes from Levi. And then there is the order of Melchizedek. uh, Genesis 14. Melchizedek uh, was a priest of God early on. Uh, was a type of Christ, as Jason preached last week. 500 years later, in Exodus 20, you have the tribe of Levi, maybe possibly a little before that, but that's just for clarity's sake or simplicity's sake, Exodus 20. Uh, they're established and ordained as priests uh, there. So the order of Melchizedek and the order of Levi. Now, if you don't grasp that now in verse 11, I don't think this text is going to make much sense. Okay, because the author is going to distinguish between these two priesthoods as we walk through this text. Okay, so you have two priesthoods, Genesis 14, the order of Melchizedek and the Levitical priesthood or the order of Aaron. And the author says, um, if perfection had been attainable through the order of Aaron or through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been uh, for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? In other words, there's something uh, incomplete with the Levitical priesthood. I don't think it's, I don't think it was flawed. 
in a sense, but it was temporary. It was incomplete. It pointed beyond itself. Namely, the order of Melchizedek, ironically speaking, that came before it. Okay, so there's a need to arise baked into the, the, the Levitical priesthood itself for someone to come and fulfill all of those ceremonial aspects of the law. Okay? There, there's a need there. Um, those priests couldn't do it. That's the point here being mentioned in verse 11. Someone needs to come in the likeness of Melchizedek without genealogy, right? Someone named the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tip my hand. Okay. That's the point here in verse 11. Now, what about this word perfection? What does that mean? If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. So most of the commentaries, in fact, most all of them, see perfection in a moral and religious sense. So let me just read one quote here. Perfection means the complete, unclouded communion with God. That's good. It's the full realization of peace with God. Which is founded upon a true emission of sins. Has for its consummation eternal glory. In one word. Perfection. Is complete. Blessedness. That is what the Levitical priesthood. Could not offer. It could not give. We'll talk about this later. A secure forgiveness, a final blood atonement for sin. It left something undone, okay, that someone would need to come and clean it all up. So perfection is, you might say, justification. And let's just go to chapter 10 to support this view, which, as I said, is the major view. Chapter 10, verse 14 it's always helpful hermeneutically if you don't understand what the word means in and of itself to, to compare it with how the author uses it in the same book. Okay, so 1014. He's talking about Christ's death for by a single offering. He has what? Perfected. That's right. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, so you and I are being sanctified by the by the cross of Christ. And the work of the Spirit in our lives, the ministry of the church. Okay, but we have been perfected for all time, once and for all, by Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have justification in Christ. And that is what the Levitical priesthood could not offer on its own. That complete blessedness, that final justification of the sinner or of the ungodly. So there we have it. Verse 11. We're looking for a perfection that is attainable and it's not attainable through the order of Aaron. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So. You can see that the priesthood. And the law go hand in hand, right? When there's a change in the priesthood, he says, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. 
In other words, when Christ comes upon the scene, when the eternal son takes on flesh and fulfills the role of mediator, prophet, priest and king as as priest, there is a change in the law. And what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it does mean and what it doesn't mean. What it does mean is that when Christ is the final indestructible high priest for us, he dissolves or he fulfills all of those ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic administration. Okay? So all of the feasts, the sacrifices, the festivals, the priestly vestments that we don't wear today, all of the odd clothing that you're not supposed to wear and the, and the, the strange food we're not supposed to eat. Christ, uh, by the final high priest, he fulfills all of those laws, those ceremonial aspects of the law. Probably those aspects of the law that you tend to skim when you're in your Bible reading plan, okay? In Leviticus, Numbers, and Exodus, okay? In Deuteronomy. That is what Christ, that, that, that is what this text is, is saying. Christ is priest, and so there is a change in the law. What this doesn't mean, that's what it does mean, what it doesn't mean is an abrogation of the law in totality. So we are not uh, antinomian. You heard of that word. Thank you. Antinomian. Uh, nomian comes from namas, which is law. So we are not anti-law. Meaning that the Mosaic moral law, the, what we call the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is still abiding on us today. So the, the ceremonial aspects of the law are done away with. As Christ as priest fulfills those, but the, uh, the moral law of the Mosaic law is still binding on us today. In other words, it's not okay to murder or lie or cheat or steal, etc. That law is still binding on us today. So that is what we don't mean when it says there's a change in the law as well. Well, we just throw it out. No, we keep the moral uh, establishment of the law. Now, verses 13 and 14. For, what? yep, there we go. For the one of whom these things are spoken, so he's getting to Christ now, belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So we've talked about this before. The, the Jewish people had in their minds a line for priests. That was the tribe of Levi. And a line for kings, the tribe of Judah. And in the Jewish mind, you didn't, they didn't cross. They didn't mingle. The king kept the scepter and the priests laid the sacrifices. And so that's, that's what was in the mind of the Jewish people. But the author of Hebrews says, the interesting thing about the gospel and of Christ is that um, the one of whom these things are spoken of, who is going to fulfill our perfection for us, belong to another tribe. It is evident that our Lord was descended from 
not Levi, but from Judah. So, in other words, Christ is not going to simply be an indestructible high priest. He is going to be an indestructible king priest. Does that make sense? He is both the lion of the tribe of Judah and the priest who offers himself on the tree of Calvary. So, uh, Genesis 49. Go there for a moment. Just to establish this. Genesis 49, 10. He is, he is interweaving the role of priest and the role of king. Okay, but now he's emphasizing king with Judah. Genesis 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedi- shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, let me ask you a question. What are you if you have a scepter? A king. What are you if tribute is brought to you? King. Okay. What are you if you have a ruler's staff? King. Good. Good kids. Okay, so... Genesis 49, the the line of Judah is the line of kings. And so Christ, he's saying, or the author is saying, Christ is not simply a priest, but he is also the king of kings and Lord of lords. So he's he's beginning to push and fulfill out his argument. And it gets better. So think of, before I move on to verse 15, think of uh, that vision John sees in Revelation 5. John is in the throne room. And there is a scroll. And there's seven seals on it. And John uh, sees no one worthy of opening this scroll. And one of the elders says, weep no longer, John, right? Weep no longer. Why? For the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has conquered. And he is able to open the scroll. But when John looks in Revelation 5, what does he see? A lion? He sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Lion of the tribe of Judah, king. John turns and he sees a lamb. Christ the priest offering himself on the cross for his people. He is our indestructible king priest. Right? Verses 15 to 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest. This is so good. Not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. So he's, you can see he's, he's pulling down the Levitical priesthood, okay? He's pulling it down to its rightful place. So who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, 
but by the power of an indestructible life. One order. Remember, two orders of the priesthood. One order, the Levitical one, ordained priests on the basis of lineage. If you're a Levite, guess what you are? A priest. That's how one ordained priests. But, he says, and this is the crux of his argument, the other order, after Melchizedek, which Christ fulfills, ordains priest, not by lineage, but by the power of an indestructible life. Christ, by virtue of being God, a very God, light from light, having a divine nature, could not stay dead. Death could not hold him and the grave could not keep him down. You can't keep a good man down. So Christ, being God, raised from the dead. And therefore, this this king priest, the author says, is now indomitable. He is indestructible. For us and for our salvation. What good news. This is why I find it so odd when the world pities Christ and the church. Pity Christ? He's indomitable, He's indestructible. He is to be feared. He is to be revered. He is to be loved and adored. And and pity the church? I don't think so. We have a message that ought to be heeded and listened to, not to be pitied. Our king priest is absolutely indestructible. That's what I was saying all week. Amen. Praise God. How thankful we ought to be. How glad we ought to be. How joyful we ought to be. That the eternal word became flesh. That the Lord of glory became man. And as as Isaiah puts it, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And because he is indestructible, that light will never go out. Our God is a king priest forever, as he substantiates that in Psalm 110, verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced 
through which we draw near to God. So on the one hand, a former commandment, the ceremonial law of the Mosaic Covenant is set aside as Christ fulfills that as priest. And it is now weak and useless. Okay? The law made nothing perfect. You, you could not and cannot be justified by the law of God. The law simply shows your sin and how to live, but it cannot give the power. It does not give the power to make you righteous. It shows what perfection is and does it not? But it does not declare you Perfect. It cannot. The law was not given for that. It was given, as the Apostle Paul says, to show our sin. So the law made nothing perfect. And that ceremonial law is now set aside. Uh, Romans 8. This is how this is how Paul puts it. Go to Romans 8. Romans 8, 3. I hope that this text in Romans 8 and Hebrews 7, I hope that your faith and your hope rests right here in the gospel. Romans 8. For the, uh, where are we? Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Praise God. Praise God. For God, listen to this, for God has done what the law. Weakened by the flesh could not do. Are you hearing Hebrews in this? Perfection was not attainable through the law. You cannot be justified by working, doing Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. There was just too much man in the law. Too much sin in the law. But God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the law says, Christian or sinner, be perfect. You want to be with God, be righteous. That's what the law says. And God in the gospel says, I have it. They don't, but I do. I'm going to send Christ, my son, to live in their stead, to die in their stead, and to rise in their stead. And that is how one attains perfection and complete blessedness with God. Through the gospel alone. And then the righteous requirement of the law is now fulfilled in you. He doesn't do away with it. He put it on Christ. He fulfills it. And now you walk in him and have union with God. It is the greatest news men and women and children can know.
John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress puts it like this. Christian is on his way to the celestial city. And early on, he meets worldly wise men. And he's got this burden Christian does on his back. And worldly wise men says, where are you going? He says, well, I'm going to the celestial city. I don't know about you, man. I'm going to the celestial city. My city's about to get burned, the city of destruction. And worldly wise men says, ah, oh, I have a great idea for you. There's actually a shortcut. You don't need to go through the hard road and the narrow gate. Bypass all that. I have a friend named Legality. In fact, he lives right over that hill over there. That hill being Mount Sinai, the law. Christian goes, all right, I'm into shortcuts. So Christian goes, and he's on top of this hill, and the law is, guess what, about to crush him. His conscience is so worried and condemned that he cannot fulfill this righteousness that this mountain, this law um, declares. And so just as about Christian is about to die under this law, evangelist shows up, the gospel minister. And evangelist says, what are you doing up here? What, is, what are you doing? And Christian says, well, I met worldly wise men. And he says, this is a shorter way over to the celestial city. So I just thought I'd come. And evangelist says, yeah, worldly wise men is a, is a cheat and a liar. Don't listen to him. Get back on the narrow path and the gospel road and enter through the narrow gate. That's what we need. That's what we need. Friends, pastors, one another to put us back on the gospel path as we seek to live this life. Well, I just skipped a ton, so I'm going to go back to verse 19. On the other hand, he says, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Let me close with this. You see the law and the gospel in juxtaposition here. Verse 18 is the law. We talked about that. Verse 19, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced There is our word in the book of Hebrews, better. It's used 25 times. Better. Christ is better. Christ is better. He's better than this. He's better than that. He's better. He's better. And he's better. Here we have it in chapter 7. He's a better hope is introduced. And you could say through whom? Through whom we draw near to God. You know, the Levites had a way to draw near to God. Over and over again, they would offer sacrifices. Sacrifice after lamb, after lamb, after lamb. I want to draw near to God. I need to draw near to God. And you and I, this verse says, all those sacrifices are set aside. And Christ has been given to us to draw near to God. The final sacrifice in our place. And so we can say with Charles Wesley's hymn, My God has reconciled his pardoning voice I hear He owns me as his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Abba, Father, 
Abba, cry. We have boldness and confidence to draw near to God the Father. You know, I don't know how you view God the Father, but my guess is that, um, and some of us were saying this Thursday night, my guess is that uh, you, you view him as he loves you because you're his child, but um, most of the time he's probably a little bit displeased with you. Is that how you view him? I view him in that way. You know, most of the time his heart is about that big for me. Real small. Real limited. And there are five of us on Thursday night talking about John Owen and the heart of God for his people. Owen says it's the heart of the Father that uh, your, your faith must rest in. Jesus put it like this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And so we're reformed, and so we restrict that verse. Well, be careful. Be careful. He goes on to say, uh, which one of you, if his child asks for a piece of bread, will give him a rock? If you have a child and he asks for a fish, which one of you will give him a serpent? And Jesus says to expand the heart of God. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to you? A better hope has been introduced through whom we draw near to God. Do you come to the Father through the Son? Well, He is my friend, satisfied, and enjoys your company. His heart is not about this big for you. If you are in Christ, His heart is, I don't know, Yay, big. That's right. It is bigger than that. Let's pray. Our great God, thank you for your word. And thank you for the gospel. How we can attain perfection. Not through the law. But because there was another order. And this order stands forever because you Jesus Christ, remain forever. You are indestructible. God, I pray that we would be a people, no matter how big we are, no matter how small we are, that we would be filled with such gladness. We would be filled with such hope. There is no pulling Christ down from heaven. He reigns and will reign forever. And we with him. 
We ought to be the most happy, secure people on this planet, Lord. Full remission of sins. And you promise to be with us until the end of the age. You are indestructible. Might you fill our faith today. As we come to the table, Lord, God, may this bread and may this juice lift our eyes and our faith to you. Use physical elements to, as you often do, impact us spiritually. That we would taste Christ, having communion with him and having communion with one another. That we would have a sense that the church will march on to glory. Give us hope today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.